0: The opinions and viewpoints expressed in this podcast represent those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of metadata solutions. This podcast has been created for general information and educational purposes only. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: You're listening to Clinical Minds, presented by Metadata, a Dassault Systems company. I'm Alicia Staley.
2: And I'm Kelly McKee. Clinical trial awareness is crucial in order to recruit eligible patients and volunteers into trials, but not all outreach programs are created equal. It's so important that we promote the right kind of message to improve awareness and access to clinical trials.
1: So today we're speaking with Tricia Barrett, Chief Operating Officer at Praxis on the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to successful patient recruitment strategies. Tricia, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Kelly. I'm thrilled to be here with you both. So,
1: Tricia, why do we need to engage patients directly for clinical trial recruitment? Isn't this the job of the site and the sponsor?
0: Well, I think if you were to think that, it would be fairly narrow-minded. I think if you allow the sites to do all the work, you're really then only as good as the site's own database or the patients that are coming in and out of their doors. And there's so many other people, especially those untapped and who may be research naive or interested in participating, but having no idea that clinical trial participation is even an option. So I think the more we can do and provide those educational layers and the more we can try and create opportunities for people to first know about clinical research, better understand it, but then also consider participation all the better. So I think if we simply rely on sites to do the work, uh, we're leaving out such a huge portion of the audience that otherwise, you know, we really do want to consider. So Tricia, tell us a little
2: bit about the history of patient recruitment. And am, am I right in really thinking that it's been very transactional to date?
0: I think so. I And first of all, I mean, even though clinical trial participation has been so necessary, I'm not sure that it's been given the proper stage that it deserves. And I think part of the reason why you may consider it to be transactional is that the science seems to have trumped more of those human elements of things. And I know to, to sort of be the marketing folks who come into this otherwise narrow niche sort of space. It's, it's always we lead with protocols and we lead with scientific jargon and, and really hard and difficult to understand things. I mean, you look at clinicaltrials.gov and it's pretty difficult to navigate. You don't necessarily understand the user experience aspect of what it would take for someone who isn't in this field to be able to consider Participation. So I think that the transactional aspect of it is just the way that the industry has really been built and seems to operate. And when you want to introduce innovation or new approaches, new things, you met with a lot of red tape. And that's a challenge in and of itself is trying to navigate all of that. It's chipping away at it and being able to put up proof statements and show success to be able to get people to otherwise consider different options when it comes to recruitment. Uh, Because otherwise, I think there's just an expectation that Dr. Smith is going to have a database of patients who are going to be willing to participate. But does that mean that that individual is going to meet the complex inclusion-exclusion criteria? Does it mean they're going to have a great experience? Can they find a parking spot? Was the person on the phone nice to them? I mean, all of these things that you don't then necessarily consider that you have to take into consideration when you're thinking about the holistic experience of patient recruitment.
1: I mean, listening to it, you go through that list of things that you have to think about are... All direct-to-patient campaigns basically following the same playbook? Are they all created equally?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely not. I think if you, if you think something is going to be a one-size-fits-all, um, then you're going to be sorely mistaken. Think about patient education, for example. That might be a critical component to a patient recruitment campaign or at least some of the materials that are created, but you really do have to look at each individual protocol and analyze it. And, and it's interesting, I mean, I don't have a medical degree. I know enough to be a hypochondriac when these protocols sometimes come across my desk, but I've learned to look at them and read them from a patient standpoint. Why would someone want to participate and why would they not want to participate? And then I can usually, you know, throw out 90 pages of the protocol that, that's over my head and that I can't understand from that medical standpoint. But I think in in how you approach those patients and their caregivers or their loved ones or the other influencers who might be really participating with them, not so much as the patient themselves, but as, as part of their care team and influencers going into things, you have to think about and really talk to them, listen, understand what it's going to take for that individual to participate, what the barriers are going to be, what the opportunities are going to be. And start to create a campaign that's going to resonate directly with that individual. And so we try and come at it very much from that angle. And so we look at it from the patient, from the customer, from however you want to identify that individual, that volunteer, that hero who's going to be participating in this study. uh, That's who we think about and we try not to look at it from the science side as much. Sure, we have to understand it, and it's important to know why you're going to conduct this trial and what's going to be expected of someone, but when we look at direct-to-patient outreach and we think about patient recruitment campaigns, it is all about that individual and how we connect and how we resonate with them. And so that's why you really can't have it be a one-size-fits-all type of program.
2: So what distinguishes a bad campaign from a good campaign? And can you provide some examples?
0: Well, there's a whole lot of bad ones. So let's start Let's start there. I mean, I'll never forget. Maybe you could argue they're somewhat brilliant. Who knows? But, you know, you see the the horrible stock photo of a miserable looking person. And you have, do you have X? And you could insert any condition. And do you have back pain? Do you have warts? Do you have gonorrhea? Like, what do you have? And let's just throw it in there and throw a miserable looking person. And and there you've got your patient recruitment ad. Hopefully, everyone agrees those are examples of probably bad ads that aren't necessarily going to resonate with that particular audience. And instead, uh, we like to, again, find a way to connect with those patients or with that population who might be suffering from a condition or an ailment. And um, one of the ways in which we do that, if we, you know, first of all, let's talk to them. So let's find ways to get those groups together. Some companies like Metadata, for example, have patient insight teams that you can work with in talking to these patients, or you can create different focus groups. There's online ways to get people together. Um, We also conduct quite a bit of social listening to try and listen into conversations that people are otherwise having online and, and really do an analysis of those. But I think once you can better understand the patient and what it is that they're going through. It makes creating those materials that are going to resonate that much easier. And also understanding at what point in diagnosis are they? Is it newly diagnosis? How are they feeling? Um, Are they scared? Are they afraid? Do you have to think about tone in your communication? And are you being empathetic? Are you not? And, you know, are they, have they tried everything? And, you know, now this is a new hope. This is a new, you know, opportunity for those individuals. And so when we look at campaigns and I think about some that have been successful that we've done, uh, a couple that come to mind, uh, we did a campaign for diabetic neuropathy. And some of the insights we learned from the patient, it said, you know, it just feels like pins and needles in my feet. So we brought that to life and literally created a foot that was a pincushion and put the pins and needles in, and I'll never forget, we had to do a television campaign for that particular study as well. And we had our our actor who we had to pin, (laughs) we had to put all these pins. It was like we were doing our own acupuncture with the poor person. Um, Thankfully, nobody was hurt in the making of, of that commercial, but that was one that to me completely resonated. And I would hope anybody with diabetic neuropathy would look at that and say, yep, that's exactly how that feels we did another campaign once for endometriosis. And this is a series of, of ads that we had done um, at Praxis. And it was for women who, again, it felt like sharp stabbing pain in their abdomen from their endometriosis. And we brought that to life by uh, creating a prop of barbed wire, actually, and, and hiring these, again, actors, models, and and putting the barbed wire around their midsection, and and using that as part of the campaign imagery that's just so visually arresting and striking. Where if you put that up next to the unhappy looking women with, do you have endometriosis in a doctor's office or uh, you know in a community center or somewhere, then you know I would hope that the arresting visual would have been that with the barbed wire. Um, ironically, we still have that in the office, and people sometimes use it as a Halloween prop. So the other one that comes to mind, um, and and I really give credit to the sponsor on this one, we had done a campaign, and it was for vaginal dryness, and they specifically said, "I don't want to see an unhappy postmenopausal woman who is, you know, complaining from this condition," and we also thought women won't know that they're suffering from an actual condition. They just might think that their body's changing and things are going on. And so we really had to play to the symptoms and not so much what the condition was because they, chances are they, they wouldn't have been diagnosed. And so um, for any of the women out there who might be listening or men, I don't want to exclude them, but when women go and get their nails done at the salon, chances are you'll look and see what is your uh, the color of your nail polish. Companies like OPI and others have have really made quite a game of naming their, their nail polish colors. And so in this particular case, for this patient recruitment campaign, we used the symptoms of vaginal dryness to create a poster of all of these different nail polish bottles with symptoms like, you know, love hurts and, uh, you know, red hot something. And so we, Desert Sand was one of the colors as well. So it was, um, it actually got international recognition as a direct-to-patient campaign and something that we were really, really proud of. But I mean, talk about thinking outside the box from what you would regularly see in this industry for advertising, something that, again, we were really proud of.
1: That's a really interesting uh, way of thinking of doing outreach or, or you play to the symptoms as opposed to the, the demographic or the person that you think is going to have that condition and that people will relate to the symptoms sometimes more than than anything else. And, and that's very unique.
0: Well, and you do. I mean, and that's part of that protocol analysis that we do. And so, again, we're not looking at the science behind it. We're looking at the human element behind it and and what someone will what will resonate and what is that one thing that we want to be able to deliver to them? And if, if they don't know what their diagnosis is, or I mean, think about nowadays with NASH, like when you're trying to do NASH recruitment and people you know, may not know that they have a fatty liver, they may not know of a diagnosis. And so you really have to think about where are they in that journey and how are you going to, again, connect and resonate with them.
1: What would you say are some commonalities um, in terms of challenges that you've encountered in recruiting patients for clinical trials, and, and how have you addressed sort of these common themes that might continue to come up as you're working on these projects?
0: One of the challenges we have is is sometimes educating sponsors on what our role is expected to be. I think everyone's looking for like what is that magic bullet that's going to you know recruit my study and. And when we get involved, really, our work is more at the top of the funnel. And so we get involved in trying to find people in their daily lives, connect with them, have them consider uh, clinical trials as as an option, working with the research sites to make sure they have the tools they need to be able to communicate with their patient database, uh, trying to provide educational materials to advocacy groups, support groups, whatever it might be. But we can't necessarily then control, again, that experience, and we can't control what happens at the research site level. And so that seems to be something that comes up time and time again, is is how do we predict sort of the outcome of what our involvement is going to be in a trial? And that can be you know, a challenge that's overcome with, I think, education and understanding and mapping out, again, the different roles and responsibilities of the various partners involved in those recruitment efforts. But that seems to certainly come up time and time again. I I think, too, then getting the challenge is always getting all of your sites to perform. That seems to come up. You always have really top performing sites and then some that are mediocre and, and some that just may not be as strong. And so, how do we focus our efforts at trying to best support the sites and and what can we do? Because we don't want to be a burden to the research sites at all. We want to complement their efforts. We want to help them. We want to support them. When you think about just any industry outside of clinical research, no matter what it is, it could be banking, it could be you know, anything. You, you think about your internal audiences and you think about your staff and you think about others as well. And, and so we don't want to just think about patients and, and not forget about the sites or the research coordinators or those monitors or others that are involved and have that connection as well um, with the patients. And I don't know about you guys, if you're seeing it too, but uh, the, it seems like inclusion exclusion criteria is getting more and more complex and it's like, well, we want you to find the needle in the haystack, and then we want you to find, you know, the other needle that's half the size of that needle and and go and try and find that. And and I, I think we, we also need to be realistic about who we can target and how we can reach. I mean, digital opportunities have allowed us now. I mean, I think about the strides that we've all made in rare disease, and I know you both have had such a huge part in that as well, but you are able to now find people. Um, those with rare disease are self-identifying more and more and not hiding behind a screen name as much as maybe they once did. And there's incredible communities and patient-led groups and, and so many different ways to, to try and connect but it takes effort and it takes time and it takes trust. I mean, I think that's a theme that, that comes up in terms of challenges time and time again. This was the trust factor came out loud and clear for all of the COVID recruitment that was done, especially when we think about diversity and reaching minority populations. Our industry hasn't always had the best track record with all different types of patients. And so trust is something that you know we need to build, we need to continue to overcome. When I think about ways, though, that we were able to rectify some of the challenges, and again, I know you both have participated in in these kind of exercises as well, but bringing people together to talk and listen to each other and try and solve problems together, um, so often we're siloed and we try and operate in vacuums. And the more that we can come together, and whether that's through, you know, now Zoom sessions or different, if, if we can get together face-to-face and have meetings and do sharing, but if we can listen to patients, if we can listen to sites, if we can listen to advocacy groups, if we can kind of come together and all agree on one thing, we're trying to advance science, therapies, drugs, you name it, um, but if, if we can, band together and all play nice in the sandbox together and work together, then then we're going to be able to accomplish way more than if we each try and do our own little part in our own little world and throw it against a wall and see if it sticks.
2: Yeah, totally agree. And your point about inclusion-exclusion is so timely and appropriate. The medicine today and the drugs that are being developed are like Star Trek amazing, right? I mean, we were able to create a vaccine that works in record time through CRISPR technology and gene modifying therapies. You know, individuals are able to do what they never thought was even possible, but they still have to be tested in humans, right? And so people aren't perfect. There's not one perfect person. It's hard sometimes to uh, explain to the brilliant scientists and phys- physicians who are developing these protocols that your molecule may be perfect, but the people that you need to test them in aren't, and that and that's just
0: reality. No, you're so right. And when I think about the COVID nineteen vaccine in particular and the mRNA technology that came forth with both Moderna and with Pfizer and there wasn't time to overthink things. It had to get done and it had to get done in record time and everybody worked together to get it done. And yes, it's late nights and it's weekends and it's all of the above. But I, I think that what was accomplished in 2020 and early 2021, I mean, should go down in the record books for clinical research as something extraordinary. And how do we look at that and learn from it? Nobody wants to jeopardize the science or the data or the results. I'm not suggesting that. But there have to be efficiencies learned and gained through that process that we can continue. I mean, who would have ever thought telehealth would be able to play such a role? And who would have ever thought that you would have you know, the opportunity to eliminate study visits and make them virtual, which is going to be so much easier on the patient to participate. Again, go back to thinking about the patient and how is it going to make it easier for a patient to participate? Well, yeah, maybe if they don't have to go to every single visit in person, maybe if they do have the opportunity to do some sort of telehealth or or video type of visit, it's really, you have to rethink the way we're doing things and everybody needs to get on board with change.
2: So, a magic fairy comes down and grants you five wishes. You can change any five things about clinical trial recruitment, but it has to be about clinical trial recruitment. What would they be?
0: Well, I was really sorry I wasn't able to join your Twitter chat about this one because it's near and dear to my heart and my genie would grant me a wish that would allow clinical trials to be front and center in conversations with your doctors. And I feel like every time I've talked to any doctor I have about what I do and the work and I ask them about what clinical research opportunities they are aware of or could there be for a healthy volunteer or or something like that, I met with just like a stumped look on my face. And maybe I'm going to the wrong doctors. You know, you could argue that I I should change, but I don't feel like the information trickles down to point of care all the time for a patient. And in my case, thankfully, a healthy patient um, to be able to talk to my doctor about opportunities. And to that point, I mean, my other then bigger wish is how do we as an industry, and I, I realize I may be signing myself up for something here, but how do we create a global campaign? Because I do think it has to be global to educate on the importance of clinical research and on the kind of positive side of clinical research. I'll never forget the Time Magazine that just showed like the rat in the cage. And it's, you know, this is what clinical research is. And I so badly want Time Magazine to reproduce that with one of the heroes who participated in the COVID-19 vaccine research. And Kelly, maybe it should be you who's on that cover. But, (laughs) you know, to be able to say, no, like this is what clinical research is. It's these heroes that are making things happen. And who are participating in these trials so i feel like the industry again we need to forget about our silos we need to forget about our competition we've been given this stage a silver lining in the pandemic is we have a stage right now that we can somehow capitalize on and talk about the importance and the good that comes out of Clinical research. And I feel like it would be a real missed opportunity if the industry doesn't do something together. And so let's go, genie. Let's make it, you know, let's make it happen. Something else I would change. I think there's so much more untapped power and energy in working with advocacy groups. And yes, you have your national and international groups, but you've also got a lot of patient-led and kind of more grassroots level. And so how do we work with them to provide opportunities so that they can use their platforms and their stages to educate their communities? Because there's already a built-in level of trust there. And how do we either provide them with the resources? whether it's educational, it's financial, it's whatever that need may be. How do we work more with them so that it's not always a knock on the door and an ask just, we need your patients, but it's a collaborative relationship that you're cultivating and growing over time so that it's just there as an opportunity always to consider what options there might be in clinical research. Another wish list of mine is how do we find a way for patients to continue to get results and stay informed throughout the process? I mean, this is one thing that seems to come up time and time again. It's like, okay, I've participated. I've done my part. Now what? And did it make a difference? Did it help? Where, where do things stand? I think closing that feedback loop is something that we really, really need to do a better job of across the board. And I would love there to be some sort of industry standard or some sort of guidance on how to do that so that it is done across the board because it's not currently. And I guess my last wish list item for my genie in the bottle is some sort of a playbook for global recruitment. I think every country, every ethics committee has their own rules and regulations about what can and can't be done. And it seems to be ever-changing and how we can somehow continue to regulate or have best practices that could be done and able to be rolled out faster than we can currently do it and without as much trial and error as we currently do things, I think that would be incredible. I'm still sort of shocked that in 2021, Google only allows clinical trial advertising across their platform in 20 countries in the world. That to me just seems too low, and we could be doing better. And how do we do better? I would hope my my genie could help me with that as well. Well,
2: it's certainly, if those uh, five wishes came true, we'd be in a very different place. That genie's going
1: to be very busy, I think, for a little while. <laughs> so.
2: Trish, you you touched on a bunch of things that I I
1: would love to just pull out here, just briefly talk about. One is this confluence of events that we're in the midst of a pandemic. We have an opportunity to do some incredible coordinated outreach to shore up the concept of trust and understanding of this, the research industry across the board. We've been given this pandemic and and an opportunity to sort of reset, re-educate, and reinform people about why this industry is so critical in keeping drug development moving. But one thing in particular I'd really love to get your thoughts on is around technology. I mean, we're also at a point in time where we've got more technical tools at our disposal than ever before. And is there something that you see in terms of technology or different disparate pieces of technology that we can thread together that would might make an even greater impact on how we could accelerate Recruitment timelines.
0: I go back to your, you know, are all direct-to-patient campaigns created equal? And you know, it's not one size fits all. I think the same can be said for technology. Yes, there's a new shiny object around the corner, but just because it's there doesn't mean that it's right. And so, I do think that you have to look at and understand the technology and think about how does it fit in. So is a wearable a good option for that particular study, for that particular protocol? In some cases, yeah, absolutely. It might be. In other cases, no, doesn't make sense and you know, certainly doesn't need to be incorporated. I don't know that there is that one piece of technology that's going to be the game changer. That said, I think you need to look at what technology people use in their daily lives all day, every day. And how do you best incorporate and try and make participation in clinical research accessible through those means? And so you have some companies and and it'll be really interesting to watch and follow the apples of the world and Amazons and others and what they do in this space and are already doing in this space. And it was quite easy to sign up for a couple of the Apple Health clinical trials that then Automatically integrate into, you know, my own personal calendar on my personal iPhone that I'm using and and make participation really, really easy. I think there's really something to be said for the wearables, just how much that they can track. And so how much you know burden you might take off the patient as well, and being able to have some things just automatically tracked, log stored, data collected, and captured that isn't going to be the burden on the patient to then have to input or record in a diary or do something else. So I think that kind of technology is really, really fascinating. I still think we've got a long way to go on, on the role telehealth can play. I think that's still very, very interesting and in how we can continue to make virtual opportunities for clinical research and and how we can potentially get participants to be able to enroll in trials, even if there isn't a research site in their own neighborhood or in their own city. Um, so I think how we can better leverage digital tools and technology to allow for you know that kind of participation, whether it's national you know, or even global in some ways, I think that could continue to be really interesting. When I think about how much technology has changed our lives just personally in the past five years and what I'm sure is to come that we don't even know about, I'm excited about it. Yet at the same time, I think there is something to be said and what reassures me about some of the type of work that we do at Praxis is that technology cannot replace human connection. And technology cannot replace the fact that someone may want to pick up a brochure and look at it and touch it and hold it and pass it along to someone else, or be able to find information on a website and you know share that with a loved one or something else. There still needs to be a level of education, comfort, reassurance, and you know, empathy that I think is put into the human and part of these trials. Um, that technology isn't going to fill that void, and I don't think it should. How the two can work together and complement each other, though, all for continuing to to find that out.
2: Yeah, we like to call it a high touch and high tech approach here, and well, and it makes perfect sense,
0: you know, to to think to do that, and and you have so many people who are so willing to to try new technology. Um, But then when you think about other audiences, like think about senior audiences, for example, and when you're trying to recruit those older participants, maybe, uh, you know, the the high tech approach isn't going to be the best option. For them, you have to again know your know your people, know your audience.
2: Yeah, for sure, and not make any assumptions, right? I mean, we have recently um, enrolled a virtual study, a decentralized clinical trial, where the average age was 67. That's the average, right? So, um, and I'm sure you come across it too, of you know individuals who are like, "Oh no, we can't do that because the population is so and so." Well, let's really understand the patient population and talk to them before we make those assumptions.
0: Well, and I think that's where you can use data and research to help prove your points, because when you look at, for example, you know media consumption habits of various demographics, and I'm thinking specifically about some of the digital ways that people consume information online. You know, you, across the board, from 18 all the way up to 80, emails number one, looking and and surfing on the internet and you know using search engines, you know, number two. Social networks start to creep up there. It's like, I can tell you that a lot of grandparents show up on those things to to check out pictures of their grandkids and and look at what's happening. And so, just because you think someone oh they're old, they may not X. I mean, that's that's really narrow minded of you to think. But the good news is, is that there is data and there are secondary research sources out there to be able to prove how people will consume media. And then it's also, again, one size doesn't fit all. So when you then break that down and you look at, okay, but who are we specifically trying to target? And then how do they consume that media? Because it may be very, very different. And not only what's the demographic profile, but what's their psychographic profile like? Are these people, you know, more likely to do X than Y? And it really build out personas of who these patients are and what makes them tick and how you can connect with them.
2: Trisha, you uh, mentioned diversity earlier. I'd like to dive into that a little bit more. We all know that it's such an important driver for a successful clinical trial as it allows for better representation of the demographics that ultimate therapy is intended for. What are some ways that engagement and recruitment efforts can specifically reach underserved and minority groups.
0: Okay, let's get that genie bottle back out and grant another wish. Um, I think in looking at how we can use this platform and stage that we've been given to educate, I think so much of that work needs to be done with underserved populations. And we should, as an industry, you know, be embarrassed about past events that have happened. So when I think about outreach and I think about recruitment, Really, I mean, we need to be repairing and mending relationships all day, every day, and not just relying on reaching out when you have a recruitment campaign that you're trying to fill. Again, I think you can listen to those patients, listen to those individuals. But more importantly, I I really do believe that you need to engage trusted community leaders and partners in these efforts. I I don't think you can rely on advertising, for example, to, to make your connections for you and try and build that trust or repair those relationships. I think that you've got some pretty powerful industry influencers who can help with this. I'm encouraged to see how many sponsors especially have put forth and really use their DNI efforts to try and grow and change as organizations and really think about how they communicate and how they might recruit and how they might treat um, these underserved populations. I think you also have to consider who that decision-making set is with those patients. Um, you might have to have a multi-pronged outreach approach that isn't um, specifically to a patient only. You might have to include different family members and different community leaders or different religious leaders in all of the type of outreach or communication that you're doing. And I think you you really need to consider creating unique materials that, you know, again, one size doesn't fit all. I think in the case, and, and if you're really, really doing right by these populations, understanding how they might be different or unique or how they might want to be communicated to or how you can make sure that imagery is representative of their population and, and how you might be able to better alter your message accordingly. It requires additional time. It will require additional resources, but I can guarantee you that the results will pay for it in spades in the long run.
1: Trisha, this has been an amazing conversation and just there's there's so much to think about now and sort of unpack from just this very brief conversation in and of itself. But one last question for you, and it's my favorite. What do you think this space looks like five, 10, 15 years from now? I just, I'm always fascinated to see what people think is on the radar and, and where we could take clinical trial recruitment, just the clinical trial industry in general? Where, where are we going to be? Well, I hope we're all still here.
0: <laughs> I hope we're, we've solved the, some of the world's problems uh, by then and can continue to, uh, to solve more. I would hope that you're going to see more collaborations. I honestly when i when i said we learned a lot during covid and how to accelerate timelines or how to better work together and how to pivot even though i'm really sick of that word pivot how you can implement new strategies that otherwise would have taken countless meetings countless proposals countless this countless that and got held up with red tape everywhere you look it all happened And it was forced to happen. So how do we learn from that? How do we continue that? And I would hope that the collaborative nature of it, that the accelerated piece of it, the better access for patients that that results from that, I would hope that all of those things continue. So that's something that I'm really looking forward to seeing because um, we'd be foolish to not learn and adopt from from what these past two years have brought. I, I would expect... And, and really, again, hope that there is more patient choice and that participation in clinical trials is far easier for patients and volunteers than it's ever been. And I think that it needs to be if this industry is going to continue to grow and thrive. And if we're able to make the changes that we all know we can and we want to make, we need to figure out a way to make things easier for patients to participate. And I would hope that that is at the forefront of everybody's minds as we, you know, go forward and think about new technology, think about new solutions. I mean, put these people on a shelf and have them ready to go. If somebody raises their hand and says, I want to participate, find a way to let them participate. How are we going to make it happen? And if it may not be for one trial, it's going to be for another trial. And we have to keep them on the hook. We have to keep them engaged. And we have to find a way to be able to to continue to advance and celebrate the amazing work that this industry does and that these patients and these heroes do for our industry and really celebrate, too, what I mean, what's able to be accomplished. Again, I, I really do look at the silver lining of everything that's happened during the pandemic as it it was it's incredible what was able to be accomplished and i was so proud to have a small part in it in my own little way and when that first shot went in the arm it was like this is this is what this is why we do what we do and let's let's celebrate the why i hope that i can inspire others alongside me to continue to to champion things through well i'm certainly inspired how about you alicia definitely definitely <laughs>
2: Tricia, thanks so much for joining us. For more information on the work that Trisha and her team are doing, please visit gopraxis.com. This has been Clinical Minds presented by Metadata. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. We particularly like the five-star reviews, and we'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Thanks so much, everyone.